My sermon is a tale of two churches. And let's pray. Lord, as we come to you and look to your word and want to learn from it and gain from it, just really speak to our hearts, Lord. Make it alive by the power of your spirit that we catch the vision of what you intended and still intend through the power of your spirit whom we celebrate today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You know, that so begins uh, Dickens' tale of two cities. He could have been talking about Kempsville Presbyterian Church. 60 years. The first 60 years from 1962 until 2022. They've been a roller coaster, haven't they? Highest highs, lowest lows, too many, a few too many sharp curves and hairpin turns thrown in in between. You might have wished for a smoother ride sometimes with a few fewer bumps in the road. But before you get a little too wistful about it, I wanted to want to remind you of a few things. KPC has been an intentionally charismatic church since around 1975-76. It intends to be a church like the one in the book of Acts. That means signs and wonders and mighty works. We also suppose, as we usually do when we think about the early church, we suppose that they enjoyed that unbroken internal peace and unity, you know, where it says those who believed were of one heart and soul. Ah, that's in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. Um, that's what we want, right? But the reality, even for, that, for them, was not that simple. Under the, that immediate spell of a big revival movement, a sweeping move of the Spirit, there is a lot of excitement, and with it there's a lot of unity. But it's only a matter of time until some of the cracks start showing. There will be cracks. And because, you know, I'm not saying this to trash talk those first Christians. I'm simply acknowledging that they were people too. And we know what happens, pardon me, <coughs> we know what happens when you take a bunch of people and put them all in one room together. That's what happens. And especially when they're all strong-willed and they're all, you know, have their own vision and they're all excited about something or other, but they're excited about different things. Well, my thing's more important than you. No, it's not. Mine's the most important thing. You know, it'll just start happening that people start fussing and, and there's tensions and all. And it's a remarkable testimony to the power and the plan of God that he can take such a willful and quarrelsome bunch and still accomplish something amazing through them, isn't it? Whether that's the early church we're talking about or KPC. 
So today I want to look back over the first 60 years. No, not the first 60 years of KPC. We've, there are slides about that. There are displays in the fellowship hall. We've been talking about that. I want to look at the first 60 years of the early church. Do a little bit of church history today. Unvarnished. In particular, I want to look at the issue of power. That is, who wields leadership and how. What happens when one leader dies or leaves? How are new leaders raised up? And what does that, that form of leadership, what does that do to the church? Page one, the 12 for starters. Now, at the start of his ministry, Jesus selected an inner circle of the 12. That's what they were called. We say, oh, the 12 apostles. No, 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 they were the 12. They listen to Jesus. They see his healings. They do crowd control. They run errands. They practice ministry. Sometimes they fail at it. But nothing points to any preparation for administration or leadership. That's not their job. It's not their purpose. Peter even says as much when he says that it isn't their job to wait tables. Well, so what is their job? Why are they there? The, the number says it all, 12. They correlate to the 12 tribes of Israel. Not the literal 12 tribes. By that time, some of the tribes from the old northern kingdom had simply disappeared. They no longer existed. Jesus, you see, did not intend to restore the old Israel of history, but he was going to create a new end-time Israel of the Spirit. They were a shall we say, theological entity. For this, of course, obviously, there had to be 12. Let's look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Jesus has left. They're waiting for whatever it is that's supposed to happen next. And then we read Acts 1, 13. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. There was Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. All of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. That's also notable there, his brothers. Now, at this point in the passage, Peter gives a little speech, urging them to select a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And then the story continues in verse 23. Let me keep reading. 
So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. That is, the disciples pick a replacement for Judas from the early followers by that time-tested technique to discern the will of God. They draw straws. The lot falls to Matthias, who's otherwise unknown. We don't hear much about him, who is then counted among the eleven. By the way, the Justice Barsabbas, we do hear about him. At one, that at one point, while he was out doing his mission work, someone tried to poison him, but the poison had no effect on him. Uh, a story that may have partly inspired at the end of, of Mark in 16, the at long ending where it says, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. That's what happened with Justice Barsabbas. But anyway... These 12 are only symbolic. They have a symbolic function. No one seems to have told everybody in the Jerusalem church, though. So they do turn to Peter and the 12 as the obvious uh, choice for leading the new Christian movement in Jesus' absence. And that's sort of by default. You know, the Spirit falls, there's all these believers, there's all these thousands of new converts, and Peter, as the mouthpiece for the twelve, must preach, heal, defend the gospel, pray, but also, whether he wants to wait tables or not, he has to oversee finances, exercise discipline, and adjudicate disputes. After all, I guess everybody figured Jesus picked them. They were gifted with the Holy Spirit, and they're better than nothing. And in the process, the church is growing like gangbusters. In year three, that's not 3 AD, I mean in the third year of the existence of the church, um, I started just sort of as a... Average number around 31, maybe, something like that, Easter. So I'm looking at around 34. You know, by year, in year three, the internal rifts begin to surface, in this case, between those who spoke only Aramaic, Hebrew, and those who spoke only Greek. And I'll, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But the upshot of this conflict is that the 12 remain the leaders of the Hebrew speakers, and the Greek speakers are urged to choose their own leaders. Basically, they're acknowledging there isn't one church, but there are two different churches, and always have been, separated by language. And then when one of the Greek speakers, Stephen, is lynched, his Greek-speaking friends 
scatter to save their lives. The Aramaic-speaking part of the church is not in danger. So the twelve stay in Jerusalem for a little while. By year six, the twelve are not all in Jerusalem anymore. Paul, when Paul goes, he sees there only Peter and James, the Lord's brother. James, this James was not one of the twelve, but he does go, he did see the risen Jesus. He was there at Pentecost, and uh, he's uh, active in leading the church there. In year 10, that's around 41 AD, give or take, both James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Peter are still in the city. But now they are targeted for persecution. The Zebedee James is killed. Peter manages to escape, but this time, this time, they do not pick a replacement for James. They do not pick a replacement for James. That's significant. Peter flees. John goes underground. And after 10 years of leadership, the 12 are disbanded. You see, the 12 was not a perpetual institution. It was a symbolic starting point that Jesus had intended and had fulfilled its function. The leadership now passes to others. As he leaves town that night, Peter's parting words are perhaps prophetic. He says, Tell James and the others about this. You see, the Jerusalem church now has a new leader. One new leader. Page two. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. <clears throat> Once he leaves... <clears throat> Once he leaves, and as I said, this is around year six, Peter no longer exercises any power in Jerusalem. He'll come and go, but he doesn't really have any say. Around year 17, this is a few years later, it's around 48 or 49 A.D., Paul comes to Jerusalem again to try and resolve tensions over the, his and, and the Greek speakers' mission to Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are coming to Christ without having to be circumcised and become Jews first. And there, he meets with Peter, with John, and this time with James the brother of Jesus. Now, Peter and John haven't really been in Jerusalem the whole time. They've come back for this meeting, apparently. The three of them are called the pillars. 
the pillars. It's a reference to the great pillars before the Holy of Holies. And now Paul, when he uses the term, he has, there's a hint of sarcasm. But the church of Jerusalem really met it with great reverence that these were the pillars the, on which the church was built. Now, despite such veneration, such respect for Peter and his role in the starting and the ongoing mission of the church, Peter doesn't exert any authority in the meetings. He tells how God, how he saw God bestow the Holy Spirit on Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, simply by virtue of their faith. You see, Peter is there as a witness to what God has done and what God is doing. He's there as a witness, not as a judge or adjudicator. Someone other than Peter is evaluating the testimony. And when Paul, when Paul lists the three pillars, and this time, James, the brother of Jesus, is named in first place. You see, there can be no doubt who holds the power in Jerusalem. The consultations there culminate in the decree of James, which announces, when it gets to the point, meat of it, it says, we read, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is not our judgment. It is my judgment. There's no more discussion. There's no negotiation. There's no vote. James settles the matter by his own authoritative fiat. Boom! So in the first decade or so of the church's existence, the leadership structure in Jerusalem was vested by default in the twelve. But when the twelve are dispersed, a new power structure emerges. All leadership in the Jerusalem mother church is now vested alone in James the Just, the brother of Jesus. He has elders, but they never do have anything but an advisory function, an advisory capacity. James is what I call the imperial pastor. In year 31, that's in 62 AD, in year 31 of the church's history, James the Just, the unrivaled patriarch of the Jerusalem church for 21 years, is murdered. So who do they replace him with? Simeon, the son of Clopas, Joseph's brother. That is, to replace Jesus' brother, they turn to Jesus' first cousin. He leads the largest part of the church 
as it goes into exile over in Transjordan during the Jewish war, and we never hear of them actually coming back to Jerusalem. And he's there leading them until he's martyred at great old age at the end of the century. But in the meantime, the church is breaking up. Other remnants of the church retreat to villages in the countryside, and there they find to lead them two grandsons of Jude, the youngest brother of Jesus, a family dynasty, the Jesus family dynasty. But they each have one sole leader. Page three, full of the spirit and power. I want to compare this, the history of the Jerusalem church and leadership there, to another church, namely Antioch. Let's back up to those early days, to year three, and let's really look at Acts chapter 6, the verses 1 through 6. Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. Now, what they said was, said, pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, this second group are also Jewish believers in Jesus, like the twelve, like the so-called Hebrews or Hebraists there in Jerusalem. But they, incidentally, all have Greek names, and they grew up speaking Greek out in the Jewish diaspora. Uh, Alexandria, Ephesus, Antioch, Rome, wherever, outside, but outside of Palestine. The Hebrews, those who spoke only Aramaic, they never lived outside the Holy Land. But these Greek guys, they've moved around. Their ties to family and we would, what we would call the old home place are not so tight. They value leadership, but not necessarily family dynasties or traditional models. They think pragmatically and, most importantly, spiritually. Now, Peter probably is the mouthpiece of the twelve. Peter tells the Hellenists to pick seven men full of the spirit and wisdom for administrative duties. But 
the seven are so much more than just administrators. Stephen, we're told, is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and miraculous signs. He's a firebrand preacher. He's a powerful debater. No one can compete with his wisdom or the spirit by which he speaks. His face glows like that of an angel. Even dying, he's full of the Holy Spirit and sees visions of Jesus in heaven. He's not an administrator. He's a prophet. He's a visionary. He is an apostle. Another one of the seven, Philip, not to be confused with Philip the apostle, of Philip one of the twelve, I should say. This Philip preaches, drives out demons, he heals cripples, he performs other great signs and wonders, he talks with angels, he hears the voice of the Holy Spirit, and he's transported like Elijah. His home when he settles down, becomes a stopping place for other apostles and prophets. His four daughters can all prophesy. Now, and then there's Ananias. He was not one of the tw- uh, not one of the seven, but he is the leader of the Hellenist or a leader in the Hellenist enclave in Damascus. He also sees visions, hears voices. His hands heal blindness, and he conveys the Holy Spirit. Are we seeing a pattern here, friends? <clears throat> as far as we, so far, really all we've, we, we've heard about individual Hellenists, these individual Jewish, Christian, Greek-speaking believers. We haven't heard anything about their congregational structure. That changes with Antioch. With a half million residents, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Around one-tenth of the population was Jewish. Probably that and Alexandria had the two largest Jewish populations in the entire Roman world, and that means at the time really in the whole world. When the Hellenists scattered out of Jerusalem, Some of them, we're told, went to Antioch, and we can well imagine that one of the seven, Nicolaus, who was from Antioch, probably went with them there. And it was there that they began evangelizing not just Jews, but also intentionally, systematically evangelizing not just Jews, but also uncircumcised Gentiles. So right now we're around year 12. Let's read what the church leadership was like there in Antioch. We're in Acts chapter 13, the verses 1 through 3. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them 
and sent them off. At this point, the most of the twelve have left Jerusalem, and the leadership is pretty much getting vested in one leader, in James, the brother of Jesus. The church in Antioch, however, is led by a circle of prophets and teachers. Five of them are named. Now, you'd expect one of those five are going to be that proselyte uh, Nicolaus, who was one of the seven, right? No. Nicolaus is not included. He's not one of the five leaders. In fact, and this is important, I want you to notice this, not, none of these five, none of them, were among the original seven. All of them are new leaders recognized instead for their charismatic gifts and for being full of the Holy Spirit. All new leaders. So in Antioch and in its mission churches, leadership is entrusted in first place to the spirit-empowered triad of apostles, prophets, and teachers. There's a constant turnover of leadership as people come and go, and of course, they're mission-minded, so they're constantly sending people out. And people are coming back in to report (coughs) back and forth. And so they're constantly sort of reshuffling the deck in leadership. And that's okay. There's no single leader. There are many leaders conferring together to discern the voice of the Spirit. And when some take off, the Spirit raises up somebody else to fill the, to fill the slot. New leaders are constantly being raised up as needed by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord of the church. Page 4 the impact of how you organize. In her classic study from 1998 called The In-Between Church, Navigating Size Transitions in Congregations, Reverend Alice Mann compared small, medium, and large churches. She found a direct correlation between the size of a church and how it's organized. The smallest church is run by one person, patriarch or matriarch, or one family, two or three people in a family. They're in the congregation. Uh, So it doesn't matter what the elders decide. It doesn't matter what the pastor wants. Because the one behind the scenes always holds the final veto power. There's only a few worker bees in the church, mostly connected by family ties to the leader or leaders. 
And they manage, they're part of and manage all the same church groups. Uh, you might have the choir, maybe adult class, maybe there's an education or programming committee. They'll have three or four significant groups in the church, all managed by the same small circle of people under the leadership of really one who tells them what to do. This type of church can only grow to be maybe 100 members with no more than 50, 55 in worship. It's a glass ceiling. It's not going to get any bigger. It never will get any bigger than that as long as it's organized that way. The next size up is led by the pastor, a pastor. He may not decide everything, but he is in the middle of the communications network. There are, in this church, more lay leaders, a few more, not necessarily related. And there are a few more circles and work, uh, work groups. Instead of having three or four significant groups, you might have five or six or seven significant groups. There are the, the elders may actually get to make the decisions with the input of the pastor. <clears throat> and this, what we call a pastoral church, can grow to, to around 300 members with maybe 200 in worship. That's the limit about of what one pastor can handle without burning out. Now, bigger churches need more layers of leadership, whether it's professional pastors or trained lay leaders. You just need more leaders. You see, the program church is driven by, well, by its programs. One or more pastors oversee staff and lots of active lay leaders. The idea is to get as many people as possible involved in decision-making and in program leadership. A program church can grow to oh, five or 600 members with three or 400 in worship. Above that is what we call the corporate church. Lots of pastors, more staff, and corporate churches, y'all have been there, haven't you? You know, they do wonderful programming. But church members tend to be anonymous. They're passive consumers of services, not so much doers and deciders in the church organization, so they have less personal investment and loyalty. You're going to have, you may not have as high a turnover in leadership, but you're going to have a higher turnover in membership. Now, Alice Mann discovered also that when a church is growing, you have to change your leadership model or you're going to be stuck at the size you're at. Your organization model is going to determine how big your church can be. On the flip side, as you change your leadership model, you will impact the church's size, whether it's up or down. <clears throat> so we see Antioch with many leaders. You want to know how the Holy Spirit does it? This is how the Holy Spirit wants to do it. 
Many leaders, none of whom cling to control, they come, they go, the Holy Spirit raises up new leaders to take their place out of the, the believers there in the body. Everybody's gifted in God's timing. Each one can lead in some capacity. Antioch's growing and thriving, and it's spreading and planting growing churches. Jerusalem, not so much. The congregation grows through the first 10 years until the 12 disband. With James in charge, we stu do still hear about a few here or there coming to Jesus. But that meteoric growth of the first years is past. Whether you count James as a patriarch or as an imperial pastor, with only one person calling all the shots, the church will languish, will dwindle, and fragment. KPC has had its experiences with that, too. Micromanaging pastors will throttle a church. Page five, the basis of your stability, question mark. Two churches, two destinies over the course of their first 60 years. First Church of Jerusalem values stability and continuity, so when their founding pastors leave, they want a steady hand at the rudder, someone know, who knows how we do things here. So they turn to someone in their midst who's conservative, meaning traditionalist, and strong-willed. I see it all the time in what I do, where there is no pastor for too long a period, or if there's a rapid turnover for short pastorates, churches will do one of two things. Either they, one, shift leadership to a person or persons within the lay community who lives here, who's been a, there a long time, maybe even descended from one of the old families, who manages everything, whether they have an official title or not. Or else, two, they'll try to make up for their sense of insecurity by calling a strong and domineering, maybe even autocratic, pastor. But either way, the church pays dearly for it. it. Finds itself steadily shrinking to fit this new leadership model, whether of a pastoral church or even of a family church, patriarchal church. That's what happened to Jerusalem. Sixty years in, it's a dying church. Another 30 years, and they vanish from the pages of history. Now, Antioch looks for dynamic, charismatic leaders, full of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Spirit's direction and open to change. They look for divine callings and spiritual gifts. And, and they want leaders who are spirit-inspired teachers and prophets and miracle workers and, oh, by the way, poets. Leaders who are gifted and effective 
Find someone who's got the Holy Spirit and give them a job. And if you don't have one to fit them, then create one, a new ministry for them to lead. Antioch wants continuity and stability too, but not in the consistent, if autocratic, leadership of one or two persons, nor in the constantly repeating rounds of annual programs, as if God called us just Our whole ministry is to do the same thing over again that we did last year. But rather, they find continuity and stability in the constant presence of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. The risen Jesus guarantees continuity and stability. The indwelling Spirit legitimizes his chosen leaders. As leaders come and go, they're easily replaced through spirit-guided revelation. For example, when the teacher Paul separates from his mission partner, the prophet Barnabas, he simply joins up with another proven prophet, Silas, and off they go for their next endeavor. That is, when the Spirit selects those whom he himself empowers, the church has an endless supply of potential leaders. even you. If you are not growing in the Spirit and developing leadership skills in the church, you are holding this church back. So draw your lessons from this. Jerusalem or Antioch? Your choice. And the best of times may still be ahead of you. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of the church. Holy Spirit, you lead up, you bring up the leaders. That's the kind of church we want to be. Pour out your spirit anew on the people that are here and some of the people that aren't here, those that are at home, and raise up new leaders for new ministries, new callings, for new kinds of outreach into the community. Grow this church as you create the leadership structure that makes it possible. And may you be blessed and honored through each and every one of us. May there be among us no shirkers and no complacent bystanders, that all of us would have our hands in the mix, serving Jesus, the Lord of the church. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.